Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized, Tertiary Tomes, a sub-podcast within Authorized, where we discuss books that are not novelizations, but similarly owe their existence to a film. Tertiary Tomes unfold at a breakneck pace, so in love with finding clues and solving clues that they commit to intrigue almost to the exclusion of all other storytelling. While this utilitarian approach can be electrifying, it is also somewhat repetitive, as characters keep finding that clues lead them to a tree. Only twice. It was too much for me. <laughs> it was too much for me when they were like, once again, the clues in a tree. I was like, all right, we're running out of steam here. <laughs> in their depiction of a nascent nation, these books come close to real insight about how the paranoia of revolution can cannibalize a cause instead of protecting it. While profundities like this, regarding liberty, dance on the periphery, tertiary tomes burn through a treasure hunt with admirable vigor. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of devout patriots. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. I National really considered school. not putting that in because calling yourself a patriot's a little, little iffy these a little days. Risky these days, but I hope within the risky. context of the episode, everyone will understand that we are uh, 1773 patriots. We Look, believe in an independent coming, nation. People are coming for a lot of things that I actually am these days. <laughs> they're they're calling themselves patriots. They're saying that they're proud boys. Look, you some of us just are these things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. It's well, tough. in the meantime, we read National Treasure colon Midnight Ride parentheses a Gates Family Mystery, which is a historical fiction adventure novel by Catherine Hapka. It follows John Rally Gates, a postal worker and horse guy living in the American <laughs> colonies in 1773. Embarrassed by his family's legacy of what he sees as frivolous treasure hunting, John dedicates his heart instead to the will of the American patriots who feel terribly aggrieved by their legal obligation to quarter soldiers in a pre-Third Amendment world. It's almost like that amendment is in direct response to stuff that was happening in this book. I went really deep on the Third Amendment today. I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, great. Can't wait. At the behest of the infamous Paul Revere, who maybe will take a titular midnight ride. Not in this book. (laughs) Well, at the very end, maybe. 
<laughs> John uses his skills of post delivery to bring an important message to a man who knows of a treasure that can fund an American revolution. That man being, of course, famous historical figure Nathan Hale. However, upon arrival, John finds that the res- oh well, and then he goes to a different guy. You're right. No, I that's didn't what read I. Your it's not Hale. It's some other guy. Yeah, I know, but also Nathan Hale is there, and I wanted Nathan to Hale mention is him. There. Cool Sam guy. Adams is there. A lot of people are there. Yeah. Well. Okay, fine. Let me take the whole paragraph again. Okay, great. Great. And I won't even say anything about Paul Revere's titular ride. Great. Great. I'm not cutting it. It's just a second take. <laughs> well, then I'm not doing the whole paragraph. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. However, upon arrival, John finds the recipient fatally slain. Again. Again. Well, it did happen in the previous book, so... No, no, I agree. It, th- th- this is an interesting thing, which is uh, Catherine Hapka's idea of a treasure hunt seems to mean that someone just knew where to find the treasure. And but he's dead you c- now. You could have talked to him, but they croaked. <laughs> uh, it feels like narratively there should be another way in, but she I hasn't agree. found it yet. In order to prepare the Americas for the inevitability of war, John must take up the mantle of treasure hunter finding in the process that treasure hunting and patriotism, despite his lifelong misgivings, are in some ways one and the same, like maybe in this one case only. (laughs) National Treasure colon Midnight Ride is the second of four Gates family mystery books, each of which focuses on a different cast of characters in a different era. It was published by Disney Enterprises in 2008. Yeah, long, long intro there. I checked the um, fourth book last night. And uh-huh. it does have printed in it a teaser for book five, which is crazy. What happened to that book? Darn it. They just never made it. But there's a whole thing that's like, what if people were in Maryland and America was involved? Our guest today, a writer through many outlets. You know, you never know where this person will pop up, but you're always glad to see it happen. Uh, an assistant editor at the Mary Sue, and of course the host of Padro Pascal, a podcast concerning itself primarily with the career of actor Pedro Pascal. I'm assuming career and not like life, right? We talk about his life. We talk about news. Cool. Sometimes he goes to get ice cream and we, we're like, he went and got ice cream. What's his deal? Happily married? What's he got going on? No one knows. He's seriously wow. unattached. That is, uh, that seems fertile for discussion. If you told me he was married with two kids, I'd believe it. If you told me he had never been in a long-term relationship, I'd believe it. Hmm. I would have guessed the married with two kids route more, but that's just me. Anyway, it's so dateable. It's crazy he hasn't been, like, nailed down. days, and it's a whole hot mess. Anyway, all those (laughs) things I just said, the person's name is Rachel Leishman. Um, Hello. She's been on another episode of ours. You're really carving out a niche for yourself. Uh, Potent uh, uh, American historical fiction. And it's really because I love Nick Cage and Harrison Ford that Hannah gave me both of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Andrew said, who do you think would be interested in a national treasure book? And I went, well, Rachel really likes Nicolas Cage. So reel her in. Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Which is misleading because this book has... Nothing to do with Benjamin Franklin Gates. No. At all. Correct. I knew going in that this series didn't have the characters from National Treasure, because that's the whole conceit, right? It's like National Treasure, but in the past. 
I I was surprised to find that it really makes no attempt to recreate sort of like the snark of like a Cage or a Bartha or or any of those characters. Like they very much have a dynamic and a very sp- specific comedic timing in those movies. And these books are just like, ah, America, she's so great and beautiful. I actually have been thinking about how I'm a little surprised these books don't have like a, you know, like a, a wraparound story about Benjamin Franklin Gates. And he's like, ah, I've heard a story about my great, 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 great grandfather. Yes. And that informs what we're currently doing. <laughs> Whatever. Let me tell you the tale. Right. And he would stop to do one of those every time he walked past a tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about this book, though, is like, when you're watching National Treasure and he's talking about how his ancestors essentially colonized America, you're like, all right, I'm going to ignore that your ancestors are, you know, in charge of colonizing America because you're on this treasure hunt. Where this book is like, he's talking to Paul Revere. He literally <laughs> is that person. <laughs> like, thanks. I Every time he turns a corner, it's another guy who's some famous historic figure. And also, like I was saying before we even started, it's like also low-key racist at points. And I'm like, why does this in here? Like, Such was the time, happen? Rachel. Uh, well, what's you the, missed what's the first the... book we read, which was pretty anti-Native American from most of the characters. <laughs> Not the main characters, but many of them. Well, it, even a little bit the main characters. The, the <laughs> protagonist of book one was comes into the book being like, Native Americans are dangerous savages and they'll kill you and all this stuff. But he, he, he learns and he changes and the tone of the book. I think is is yeah. of acceptance. It's just trying to be sort of historically accurate. Rachel, what's the what's the argument here? And I'm open to it that this second book is <laughs> uh, is a little racist. Well, it's like in the very beginning, he's like, "Oh, I walked in and there were col- there were uh, colony men dressed like natives, and I was afraid. And then I realized it was just a white guy dressed like a native. And I'm like, why?" Why was that, that had nothing to do with what they were talking about? Didn't have about. to say that. I mean, it yeah, is part of the Boston Tea Party narrative, but you know. You mean you the Boston Tea Party that we don't get to see? They just no, mention it. No, but he it. takes part. He takes part. <laughs> just mention it. He gets caught up in the moment. <laughs> That's, I think, my whole. I, I, I admitted this to Andrew before. I did not finish this book be, mainly because I was like, I can't do this. Because it was like, <laughs> all of the action was, oh, yes. This thing happens, but then we don't get to see the thing. Like that, he was like, that faithful December chilly night, and then you turn the page, it's like, back in December. And I'm like, wait, what? You mean we just bypass the Boston This feels like in direct response to the previous book, which has so much shoe leather in it, where you see every single step. That this time I was like, whoa, there's clues that they figure out or find without even like us going on the adventure with them. What's going on? That being said, this book moved way faster for me than the first one. Like, I sped through this sucker. It moves faster. It, I think that's objectively true that the plot moves faster because uh, I do this thing where I'm like, go, I'm taking notes. You know, I, I just sort of put my bookmarks in. I go back and I, I, I write the notes down. And last time I bolded the notes that were clues just so i could sort of walk through the plot so i was like okay these seven things are clues hannah if you go down to page two of the google doc there's like 30 things in bold because this book is just like every single thing is like 
Okay, well, that obviously means that, which leads me to another question. It's like, I, I don't actually think I could recount the There's too many. There's so many clues. Yeah. Without the aid of my perfect notes, of course. Of course, of course. Yeah, a lot of notes. This book, like the first book has like a, a burgeoning romance in it. This book totally throws out any concept that these characters have like um, a life outside of this treasure hunt in like a, a meaningful way. Right. I was trying to figure this out, Hannah. So yeah. when we did the Friday the 13th spinoff books, our other big spinoff book foray, mm-hmm. the first book had all of this stuff in it and it really stuck with me. And then the second book really didn't stick with me. And it Mm -hmm. seemed like in our discussion uh, that everyone was able to retain the second book but me and that they thought it was good. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering now, after reading the second one of these, whether this is just something about my brain. You have second book fatigue? Kind of. Well, the first book, I read it and I'm like, this is so different from National Treasure. I'm taking in every detail oh, this is the relationship between these characters outside of the treasure hunt. I start up the second book, and I, I in my head, I'm like <laughs> calling this main character Sam all the time. That's a and you problem. You think so? You I really do. think so? I do. I, I had th- no pr- I mean, the characters, said his full I name enough. No, I get in that. In this I just book, mean- they were like, hi, it's John uh, Raleigh Gates. It's John Raleigh Gates. It's John Raleigh Gates. He's like a like, different kind of character. I think he's a, he's a jock. He's a horse guy. And Sam was a he nerdy a little book guy. boy. But hmm. yeah, John is a big time. Like, remember, whatever, we were saying, I had a hard time believing that Sam was an 18-year-old character. I yeah, do believe that John is an yeah. 18-year-old character because he's like clearly an adult doing adult stuff. He's literally <laughs> Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk. He's like, I don't want to sell my horse. What if I sold this family heirloom to Paul Revere, and then somehow I can't believe that family heirloom never returns into the park. Then I sort of fall my way into the revolution because <laughs> okay. I don't want to lose my horse. That's he the very that beginning. Of, uh, that's the very beginning of the book. And before we jump in, Rachel, what is your relationship to the National Treasure movies before you start reading these, and and what's sort of your reaction as you open up this book, which is completely different in every way? Uh, so I love the National Treasure movies. Uh, again, I am a huge Nick Cage fan. I love Justin Martha. Um, I love that John Bean survives that movie. Um, <laughs> if we just subtract John Voight from the equation, perfect franchise. Um, Whoa! For for political reasons or acting Yeah, he's reasons? bad. <laughs> he's just a bad man. So oh, sure. What does Hollywood look like Voight. when we get rid of every alt-right weirdo, though? <laughs> Slightly Great. better. <laughs> I mean, maybe for us Great. all. Sure. Uh, I just mean like, what? What is? What are the? What do existing movies look like if we exclude all of the absolute psycho freaks? Tough, but I think National Treasure is barely impacted by the removal of the John <laughs> yeah. character. You he's could like, work he's around basically that. Basically, like, oh, Ben, give it up, and then Benjamin Gates is like, no, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Um. I love it very okay, much. I'm going to kidnap the president of the United States. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it very much. I love them both. I am sad that Nick Cage thus far is not in the TV show, but... Uh, when does that show come out? Soonish. I think like 2023. Bartha's um, in it though, right? Yes, Bartha. Or he's at least connected to it. I can't remember which one it is. This book has nothing to do with that franchise. <laughs> um, mainly because it's like, again... 
reiterating the bad part about the Gates family and not like why I like them in the 21st century. It's like, hey, no, remember the, they they were here from the get-go. And you're like, yeah, that's not a good thing. Like, you don't necessarily want to be here from the get-go. Uh, I think but, it's important that this book makes it very clear that they moved north like generations ago. So now they don't own slaves and they probably never <laughs> did. Like they've okay. dodged that bullet completely. <laughs> we're good in this regard. But uh, we love to make fun of Native Americans in this book for, or in this franchise for whatever reason. No reason at all in this one, just because we could. I but, mean, I have to believe that Catherine Hathka uh, was like, it's historically accurate that he would have that kind of response to people dressed as Indians. Like, I, I'm going to cut him a little slack for that. Okay, so on 26, he actually talks about, the main character, John, talks about like his attitude towards the idea that his family is famous for treasure hunting. And we must assume, I guess, that his family is famous for treasure hunting primarily because in book one, they found a treasure. And then, apparently, the rest of his family attempts to solve the next part and can't. The medallion thing. Right. Okay. Hannah, so they're a bunch of delusional weirdos. I don't mean to like sort of uh, alienate you, Rachel, for a second while we talk about the, the the connection between these books. But Hannah, what is the relevance of the plot of the last book in relation to this one? Is this the 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 gunpowder thing? The whole thing this book is about is not a continuation of the medallion plot. No, they just that other one just went cold. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. And his whole family, it's essentially become like a joke because they're constantly trying to find a treasure based on this medallion that they can't figure out and have not been able to figure out for generations. So John is like, boo, I'm done with that. I'm a horseman. I'm not a treasure <laughs> man. Right. Right. Okay. So on 26... We have this, and this is, I think, something you have to write into every character that's in the Gates family, because they're a family famous for treasure hunting, or, depending on the era you're in, famous for, like, just being a loon who's trying to find treasure, right? Like, they're Mm -hmm. either victorious, or they're known as, like, oh, that's a crazy guy that's obsessed with treasure. Um, Like the tradition of horsemanship in their family. An interest in treasure hunting had been passed down through the generations. That interest, too, had begun in the time of Samuel Thomas Gates, who is said to have discovered some trove of native treasures soon after arriving in Jamestown. Which in the was generations, the plot of the first book, Rachel. Which is the plot of okay. the first book. Now I understand why you were saying that one was a bit more racist. Because they're stealing... Treasures. Well, they return it at the end. They, they look do. at the okay. they look at the native treasures and go, "Well, that is not valuable to me," and they give it back to <laughs> the native people. That is the logic too. They're like, uh, <laughs> "I don't like native treasure." What this I is do with this? bones oh. and shit. <laughs> In the generations since, some had seen it as little more than a hobby, but for others, Thomas foremost among them, Thomas for the listener is uh, John's father. It had become an obsession focused mostly around an ancient wooden medallion. Family legend had it that the medallion had been given to Samuel Thomas Gates by an old native woman who claimed it held the key to great riches. I just think it's interesting that they have to do this for every single person in the family. I can't wait for them to be like, 
here's what happened with Samuel Thomas Gates, and here's what happened with John Rally Gates in book three. And then in book four, have to do both of those and the third one to be like, and now we're in it's this It's just going to be like, you know the family tree from the fifth Harry Potter book? Where Sirius Black is like, here's my cousin, or whatever, here's Regulus, no one likes him. Like, it is literally going to be that. But it just, the Gates family, and who believes in treasures, and who doesn't believe in treasure hunting. I hope that in the third or fourth book, they start to be like, oh, those are just legends or something because like there's a 150 year gap between the first two books it is it is a little mm-hmm. wild that they just take that at face value well, but I mean, then the third to, book though. takes place in like 1820 right so that's not as big a gap and then the fourth one takes place in like 1840 which is like the next generation so we're we're closing the gaps Fast. They're just all going to be about John. He's just old <laughs> as hell in the last one. And he's somehow still alive when Benjamin Franklin Gates shows Yo, I up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, I was I, born I, in 1750, but I'm here. I'm okay, so what it. of note, walking through this plot, mm-hmm. what of note happens in the prologue? Because just for the listener, I don't know if we mentioned this last time, each of these books gives you a little dramatic prologue before you get to chapter one. In the first book, it was like, that the main character's father had been disgraced for get, being victimized by, like, a Ponzi scheme. Oh, no. <laughs> Dramatic cut to chapter one. Yeah, in this one, John gets swept up in the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> we don't see. John I, uh, doesn't want... No, Rachel, go. I'm just so shocked <laughs> by the fact that you could have written a really cool, like, segment of this book about the Boston Tea Party. You had all of the tools, and then it just, you turn a page, and it says, remember back those chilly months ago when that happened? And I just, mm-hmm. like, why? Why do I have to read 10 pages about this family and how their dynamic works and how his sisters and him function So together? the mystery works, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> So you care about the characters when they're in danger. Well, it backfired. <laughs> there is one thing I like about the prologue with the Boston Tea Party, which is this character, John, is uh, skeptical of the idea of treasure hunting. He wants to do something different with his life. And he comes into this situation where he is going to need to sell. We sort of alluded to it before. He needs to sell his really fast horse, Liberty, in order to, like, keep his life afloat. So instead, he trades a family heirloom, a ring, and as Hannah says, this this thing that he, this giant secret he has, never comes back. No one ever finds out. And that ring is out. definitely, like, the ring from the first book, right? Uh, yeah. Not and... the ruby one they get at the end, but the ring he gets from the dead guy. Right? Yes, yes. Thank yes, you. Yes, definitely, Thank you. definitely. And, Pieces uh, together. I'm doing it. I mean, I guess that that Catherine Hapka wants this to be like Paul Giamatti, like stealing the roll of money from his mother in Sideways, where you're like, he never gets caught, but it tells us a lot about the character. But like, it just doesn't feel that way. (laughs) No, it It feels like it was supposed to come back at some point. His dad would get mad at him. They'd have to solve their relationship. No. No, it never comes back that he's he has like some crambl- crazy gambling addiction or something, which is sort of what that seems to allude to, that he's taking uh, wild risks. Um, 
Anyway. So hit the horse name. Okay. Now Go. with the cut too. I didn't think about this until right now. That horse is named Liberty. And yet mm-hmm. this asshole, excuse me for swearing, was not part of the revolution prior to selling this ring to Paul Revere. Because he straight up is like, what meeting? And then he goes and just waltzes his way into the Boston Tea Party. So he, a man who doesn't seem to care about, you know, liberty and freedom for all, names his horse Liberty. I think that the horse represents personal liberty to him. Sure. (laughs) So (laughs) we could go with that one. That is a really good point. Because the thing I was going to say I liked about the prologue was that it shows him being, like, radicalized into patriotism, uh, which is cool. He goes and he meets Paul Revere. Uh, let me th- I think I have the Paul Revere passage. Where I, it says, I like uh, in the prologue that his friend Duncan, who's, like, a genuinely politically active young man, is, like, trying really hard to win him to the cause, and it doesn't work. And, like, meeting a famous guy is what does yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, totally. Um, Classic 18-year-old boy shit. My uh, my name is Paul Revere. I am the proprietor of this shop. It is a rather busy day, and I am short of time. But since you are here, let us see what you've brought. He sells him the ring. He gets pulled along to a meeting, and he's there, and he's like, wow, oh my god, the, the British are really, they have us over a barrel here. This is bad stuff. And it sets him off on this this path, which leads him to treasure hunting but it's like he organically comes to it on his own where he's like well it's of course for a good adult cause unlike my father who's very very misguided and then throughout the book he keep he continues to realize like oh maybe my dad's like a secret patriot and he kind of rules and i i misjudged him i wish his dad had to help him solve the puzzle mhm feels maybe like something with that... the ring maybe with the ring that he sold to Paul Revere, which, when you think about it, why did Paul Revere took that as a sign? Not like he actually needed that ring. So could have just been like, hey, buddy, keep the ring and give you the money for it, but you're going to come with me to this meeting. And then you got you get what you wanted out of it. And instead, he just took the family heirloom that he did Well, to be fair, to- John doesn't clarify it's a family heirloom. <laughs> He's just like, here's also a ring. <laughs> so... Would you be interested in ruining a piece of history to create another piece of history? It's like what the way he's putting it to Paul Revere. Um, okay, I found it. He goes to this meeting. The air was ripe with shouts, nervous laughter, and the odors of too many people too closely situated. Despite the chill outside, inside it was warm to the point of stuffiness. Swept up in it all, John listened for the next several hours as a succession of men climbed to the front of the assembly to make eloquent and often fiery speeches. First of all, I just think that's the best paragraph Joan's written yet in either book. Just more evocative. Joan, I'm just thinking about Joan. You're always thinking thinking about Joan, Joan. but her name is Catherine in this case. I don't think, I want on the record, that all (laughs) women are the same person. My name's Joan. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Hannah's name is Joan. Right, I've always been Joan. I'm Joan now and I've always been Joan. But Catherine Hapka is not Joan. We are Joan. What if her middle name is Joan? That'd be amazing. <laughs> All women novelizationists are Jones. Yeah, in some way. You know how a good reader is like reading certain words, but their eyes are reading ahead a little bit? Yeah. I do think I said that because I was about to read John <laughs> in my defense. Okay, we so just, anyway. We're just teasing. We're just teasing you, baby. 
At first, John was disappointed to realize that the meeting focused only on the continuing dispute over unloading the British tea from the ships he'd noted at Griffin's Wharf. But as John continued to listen, he put together what he was hearing from these passionate men with what he already knew from the comments of Duncan, his already radicalized friend, and others. Before long, his own passion had climbed until it reached a fever pitch. Why indeed should the colonists suffer the tea to be landed under such unfair conditions? He had never truly thought it through before. The Tea Act wasn't just another boring act of taxation from Parliament. It was clearly nothing but an attempt to bring the colonies to heal and destroy any hopes of self-reliance. John is a real intellectual follower, I'd Uh like to say. Well, how do you mean? Um, I don't think he's coming to any of these thoughts on his own. He has done zero thinking of this. People say things and he's like, yeah, uh uh-huh, consistently. I took that the other way. I thought you were being like... He's he's really quite intellectual for a follower, but you're saying no. for an intellectual, he's a follower. No, I'm saying he is intellectually following. She's saying yes, he has no yes. original thought. Right. And he's just <laughs> like saying. gets swept up in the tide of other people's rhetoric and is like, yeah, that is true. <laughs> when like, I think he could hear either side of it and be like, uh-huh, because he's like not thoughtful that way. Definitely. I appreciate it, it, a character. He has like richness in him. He's developed in ways that are interesting. This is not a knock. It, no, I, I think it's a, an interesting depiction of, of a certain aspect of human nature. The question is just, did Catherine, I know her name, did <laughs> she intend for this to be an aspect of this character? Like, this is basically the equivalent of somebody going to, like, a particularly fun church and being like, I think I love God! <laughs> yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> maybe church it's, is awesome! I, this is, and maybe it's because I've having just watched all of Andor and watched a show that is genuinely good about the building of a rebellion, reading this book, John is the kind of character who, he is the guy in Star Wars who gets roped into the Empire and then people have to tell him, like, no, it's bad. And he's like, oh, you're right. And then he goes to fight for the Resistance. Like, that's who he is in the world of Star Wars. But when it comes to, like, setting it in this uh american revolution it's more like he's like i just paid no mind to anything happening in the world and suddenly was like oh this guy told me to come to a meeting and now i'm here and it's uh, i don't know (laughs) he is not to what i was saying is like yeah sure he's nuanced but it's also like that's such a boring character choice to be like the guy who just kind of gets roped along but like doesn't no, he's, take the he's action a guy himself. who like says great point a lot in yeah. life. <laughs> I, I appreciate that certainly Catherine Hapka felt like you need we need an entry point. And if you're like a twelve year old reading this book or a fourteen year old or whatever, you might not have a full rich education into the American Revolution, depending on where you grew up in the country, you know? Like, you might want a guy who's like, I wasn't paying attention. And everybody constantly has to explain to him why we are going to war with England. Um, I do think it's funny that, like, Duncan, his friend, is, like, totally up on it. And then his friend George, who's like a beefcake, is like, yeah, I'm also up on the situation. You're the yes. only one who wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Amazing. I Maybe I shouldn't just be giving this idea away, but I've always thought it'd be fun to put a character in in probably like crime fiction who's just kind of addicted to having epiphanies and every time somebody is like 
come over to my side. You're actually doing wrong. He's like, you're so right. <laughs> I don't fun. know why you said that, and I instantly thought of, like, Spider-Ham. Is, <laughs> is Spider-Ham changing allegiances, or is that a spoiler? No, for? no, it's just, like, his energy of, like, all right, whatever you say. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I like <laughs> the idea that the audience the first time would be like, whoa, that character just gave up his lifestyle because he believed in something. And then the third or fourth time, they'd be like, I am sick of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this guy keeps doing it. This guy just loves to say yes. On the topic of being radicalized into believing in the American Revolution... I kind of felt a little radicalized into believing in the American Revolution by this book. And and this is a, a lack of research on my part, like previously, because I was uh, just the other day. I mean, literally, I think this was yesterday. I was tutoring someone about the Constitution mm. and I started to wonder things because we were like, we we're just memorizing. Right. I was like helping her memorize Third Amendment, Fourth Amendment, 19th, all that stuff. And I started to really wonder, I was like, what is up with the Third Amendment? Like, why is it so specific? Why is it so... It's weird, right? Yeah, this is basically a book that explains it. Hannah's holding her book up. <laughs> I think I kind of thought, just to put like a seditious opinion on Mike, I think I kind of thought that the American Revolution was a bit of like a drama queen move. Until it was. I- Okay, Hannah thinks it was. I'm not saying it was wrong to do it, Mm -hmm. but the American colonies actually had lower taxes than most English colonies. They were, in many ways, like, had a pretty okay deal and still weren't happy. I'm not, I think revolution was correct. (laughs) I'm in favor of it. But it's not undramatic. I think this book um, makes a great case for why quartering soldiers could be such a burden. Mm. It it really makes it clear that not only were you required to house and feed soldiers if, you know, if, if they asked, but like whether it was necessary was up to the government and often the soldiers, at least according to this book. Because mm-hmm. the way the Quartering Act was written really makes it sound like a homeowner won't be put out very much because it's like okay first off we're gonna put them in public spaces we're gonna put them in you know your town hall we're gonna put them in uh your stables like stuff like that um the idea being like very rarely would you ever need to use someone's home but at least according to this book soldiers just come up and they're like look i need your home look i'm a soldier you gotta trust me and then you're just sort of like dead to rights which is interesting if true a crummy situation wouldn't want to put up with it, uh, especially when you have what is essentially an occupying army uh, trampling your crops, causing problems around your town. Yeah, that that grates very quickly. Totally, totally. And and am I correct in saying the occupying army is only hanging out in the colonies because the what's it called the the French Indian War has just happened? Uh, yes. But and I think it's like, been over for about 10 years. Right, we're in peacetime, but like, which is why the Third Amendment is written to be like, in peacetime, you can't be made to quarter soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, which also made me wonder, We it's been so long since we've had a war on American soil. 
if we had a war on American soil and there was like battle happening in Chicago, first of all, would I stay? Probably not. But if I did, <laughs> could they make me quarter soldiers? Because it's specifically written for peacetime. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the Constitution that's written under for one specific circumstance that we've smudged to allow us to all own assault rifles. So I would say, yes, they would be they would do that if they wanted to. It's almost as if the Constitution, which was supposed to be a living document, uh, has died. And yeah, we should have been rewriting it about every seven or eight years, but we just didn't. You guys know about this Ninth Amendment? You heard about this thing? Which one is that? I had to make sure I knew what the third one was when you started. And I was like, isn't that the soldier one, right? That's what this book's about. Am I going crazy? It's the This soldier. is fully the consequence of me having tutored a child on this yesterday. <laughs> I just have the numbers ready. It, ninth, I believe, is the one where that's basically like, hey, look, if we didn't state one of your rights in the Constitution, you might still have it. Yes, Which the is, enumeration yeah, in the Constitution of, yeah. of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. It's like, maybe. Well, and then the Tenth Amendment is the one that's like, it, just because we didn't say it doesn't mean you can't have it. That's up to sure. the states. That's sure. the Tenth Amendment. Totally. Uh, maybe I was Good old Bill of Rights, thing. baby. George Mason, making it happen for America. You're welcome. Yeah, the... the a Virginian what? patriot and also a really nasty slave owner (laughs) (laughs) um virginia has it all see what's fun about these books is we get to have these historic conversations about like how would you feel about having soldiers quartered in your home would that drive you to revolution which is certainly the educational purpose of these books Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they are clearly meant for people younger than me learning about the American Revolution, because I'm like, it's been so long. I'm sitting over here like, hold on, I gotta remember the American Revolution. I haven't learned about that since high school. It's been at least a full decade of me trying to remember what happened. So I did some pretty aggressive Redditing today, which is what everyone wants from a podcast talking about real facts. This is the type of research the people Reddit made. researched? I was just gonna say, this is the American Revolution and you went on Reddit? Okay, well, here's why, because I had to have certain questions answered. Did you not um, have a book? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a book, and I, I don't think this Constitution thing's written down. Um, no, it's, Yeah, because so, famously, <laughs> Nick Cage tried, no, he stole Declaration of Independence, but Well, because there isn't a written up. Constitution, it's an oral history, essentially. <laughs> the not rest of... Yeah, the, the, we need one of those. We need those. One of those books about like Second City or about like you know funny movies where they're like writing the Constitution, an oral history. It's like interviews. I want it to be dudes. like a leaflet, though. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, it's just a leaflet on the Constitution. Okay, so maybe I'm stating things that the listener already knows, but it seems like the idea of breaking away started because of the Currency Act, which was 1764, which is basically like. You, as the American colonies, can't issue your own currency. Now, at this point, I'm like, that's drama queen stuff. If we're thinking about revolution because we have to use the pound, like, get the fuck out of here, right? Well, then you have to have, like, (laughs) there's, there's, like, additional issues with that. Like, you can't print your own money in America. You can't, like, issue... If, so you, you know, need to hold in I think to... there's larger, yeah, the the gold standard in England, which like is mm-hmm. difficult, I'm sure. I also, mm-hmm. am, I am always mm-hmm. Team America in how dramatic we are a 
about Britain and fighting them. Because I loved during the World Cup where everyone was screaming, it's called soccer. Um, I love that we refuse to spell things the same way. That we're the only country who uses feet. Because we said Good. no. Like, I love the pettiness of it all. So I'm like, yeah, fine. Go ahead. Go this to war. comes <laughs> from most of the founding fathers and revolutionary heroes are like under 30 years old. Yeah. Which is another reason I think this book is, like, pretty strong. Is that, like, yeah, young people were the motion of the revolution and of our early government. Hannah, stop trying to talk about the book. So, um... (laughs) We're talking about American history. And I love that. So, it it feels like it does escalate in a satisfying way that starts to convince me, though. Because the Stamp Act is basically like, uh, hey, we're going to tax you a fuckload. Although you're telling me it wasn't that much. Well, it was um, less than other colonies. It was still a lot of money for like people living in the Americas, but it wasn't but with, like more than anywhere else. But without representation is pretty fucked up. I, I mean, was saying, is- isn't that right after the Stamp Act? Because that's I remember that part of history class. Isn't like taxation without representation from the Stamp Act, and that's when they started to be like, no, 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 really, like we're not doing this. Like this is messed up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. some things about history. The reason I had to still. go on Reddit was because I had to ask the question, were people living in Britain at the time that this was all going down, even if they never had to do it, were they legally obligated to quarter soldiers? What do you guys think? Well, no, because the war wasn't there. I would say, yes, they were obligated, but they never had to, so it didn't matter. It only applied to the colonies, which is <gasps> fucked. That is pretty fucked. I would revolution. That's I mean, not I, cool. I, I'm assuming they also probably had the mentality of like, well, we'll deal with that if it comes to fighting here, but it never came there. So they didn't have like a contingency plan. They were just like, if a, we have to but these house are peacetime agreements. They're, as so it's a like, citizen of a colony, you mm-hmm. want to have the same rights as everyone else. Yeah, in, no, I'm, yes, I'm Team America. The main I'm problem, saying, right? I'm Team America. I'm I know saying, you are. I understand. We're all Team America here. We're a bunch of Americans. <laughs> I'm saying I understand why England would not have that as part of their laws because it didn't matter. Like, this and is- yet England had had so many internal wars. You'd think they'd have something on the books. Now they don't know anything. <laughs> They're like, whatever. So yeah, anyway, I came to bad. believe in the American Revolution because making people quarter soldiers but not doing it to people who actually live in Britain, only doing it to the Americas, sounds really fucked up. And then by being like, okay, you have to quarter soldiers in the Americas, you're sort of tacitly admitting that they're in a place that might have some sort of warlike conflict because there's still, and I might get this part wrong, there's mm-hmm. st- still some French uh There are presence. still some French presence. And so... There's so also sort of- still a Native American presence. But most of the courting was just to be like, don't start anything, you guys. Right? Totally. To Americans. Totally. Totally. Which is, which, is, which is upsetting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I'm no, I'm no gun nut in the present day. I fully support that every American should be able to have muskets in 2022. <laughs> That's um, what I'm saying. If you want a musket, <laughs> go right on so it. So that you can join a militia. That's the important thing in yeah, the well, formation of a militia. Could you yeah, imagine people, making we could a do militia? Away with the, we could do away <laughs> right with the, the waiting period for guns if you had to stuff the musket down. 
that would yeah, like, that's its own waiting period <laughs> could you imagine if you were in like i don't know it's america any public space and someone with a musket came in it's like great well i'm gonna go into claire's and finish up my shopping because it's gonna take that guy five full minutes to fix yeah, he'll the get musket. one he'll get <laughs> one person and that person will go to the hospital and and they'll have a bad year or two but they'll be fine if the if you know, the we're not even saying anything him, new that like indeed the way gun laws were written in 1773 don't apply to the kind of guns we have now we all know this uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> just 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 say so this re- we're not reinventing the wheel i'm glad we all agree this is great <laughs> i'm just saying we we know this so this book takes a while now you're ready to talk about the book i said everything i had to say about the <laughs> fucking quartering soldiers in the third amendment and i mean and the, the soldiers that the gates family is forced to quarter suck they're mean they're rude mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. bad house guests i said something on reddit i said something bad about the mutiny you act. said something on reddit yeah i was responding <laughs> to the person in ask history that responded to me because i'm polite and uh i some guy was like, well, they were pissed off about the Mutiny Act because it had all these tax implications. And I was like, wow, Mutiny Act sounds really bad. And then the same guy responded and he was like, uh, don't speak so ill of it. It freed a lot of slaves at one point. And I was like, you trapped me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this you book. You done got trapped by history, baby. Has a breakneck pace once you get to the mystery, but it must be said that it takes a longer time than the first book in getting to the dang mystery. That seems true. Yeah, I will admit to falling asleep multiple times in the beginning of this book. <laughs> Just like I was, I was on vacation this weekend, and so I, all I had to do was sit by a pool and read a book. And I fell asleep so many times. <laughs> well, you were by a pool in the sun, I'm sure. Like that. It wasn't that hot. <laughs> yeah but after becoming friends with paul revere <sighs> john gates is tasked with taking a message to notorious revolutionary hottie nathan hale in connecticut mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and nathan hale says great take this message back to massachusetts to this to other Mr. guy Alden. who when john shows up that man is dead he is dying <laughs> Yeah, so he has been shot by a musket. Here it is. It's uh, <laughs> he's trying to knock on the door to to get to Mister Alden to give him this message, and it says, "For a moment there was no response from within. Then a weak voice called out, "I am here. Please help me." What has happened to you? John cried, hurrying in and dropping to his knees. Are you Mister Alden? I am. Alden gazed up at his at him. His voice little more than a feeble croak. But I shall not be much longer, I fear. He's dying. I mean, and also expressing a very strange opinion that when one dies, they stop being oneself. Um, Let it be known that it was the regular. It's very possible. Let it be known that it was the regulars who have killed me only for being a patriot. John gulped. He'd long known that the British soldiers, known as regulars, had little patience for patriot activity. That had been proven clearly enough some four and a half years earlier at what was known among patriots at the Boston Massacre when soldiers had fired upon a rioting crowd and killed five colonists. I do think it's funny that he's like going into history in the middle of like this man dying in his arms. Well, that's for the reader. Sure. (laughs) But yes. But yeah, this guy dies and gives him a clue. Help me out with this, Hannah. I'm confused Uh about this. Yeah. 
Nobody knows where this treasure, which is meant to essentially fund the revolution for the side of the of the Patriots, or we think for the most most of the book that it's going to be money. Yeah. Who hid it? Some some Yale students, some uppity Yalers. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Some guys I- who hang out at Yale who got together and were like, we believe in the cause of patriotism, and we're going to set up a little cash, a little cachet, to support the cause long after our time, I guess. Right? The Lenoni, Yeah, was that, Rachel? Maybe 10 years. I said it wouldn't be that long, because Yale, I just went and looked up when Yale started, because I was like, jabronis. Um, and it was 1701, so it was like 72 years prior. Yeah, so somewhere when- in that time period, some Yale guys put a bunch of guns in a hole. And then they laid a bunch of clues, because that's what Yale guys would do. I am surprised to learn that this explanation comes halfway through the book. Now that I look <laughs> back at my bookmarks. Page 107, mm. Revere says, I am afraid that I do not know the answer to that, my young friend. All I know is that something of value that was hidden by members of the Linonian Society in case tensions between patriots and loyalists should ever lead to, lo- to war. Understandably, John goes, Linonian Society? No. That would be Duncan if you read the next word. Yeah, it's okay. Duncan. It is, it is Doan. Uh, Doan. This is a Joan joke. It's not working. Uh, yes, it is one of the debating societies at Yale College in New Haven, Revere had explained. Nathan Hale was a member while he was at school. Knowing of his great patriotism, the other members entrusted him with the first clue, which he in turn was going to give to Alden. From what I understand, the society asked my friend Samuel Adams to let them know when he thought war with England might be near, so that they could let Hale know the hunt should begin. Just so tell Hale... them where the fucking treasure is, you exactly. douches. I was just going to go... say, nobody speaks like this. Even back then, no one spoke like this. This is insane. He's like, here is all of the exposition about this, and I'm going to say it in a way that repeats it three separate times. <laughs> like... You know what this reminded me of was was when we read the Dear Evan Hansen novelization and and it it's just so obvious in text that the first act of that play movie and book is just them being like let's create a situation where this misunderstanding could occur. <laughs> like this is just a page of of Catherine Hapka being like uh so anyway this is why there's a national treasure involved and also why no one person knows where it is even though it was hidden by people nobody knows yeah he goes on to explain that each clue was planted by a different member of the society and so nobody actually knows where all the clues are or i guess where the final treasure is except for the guy who planted the final treasure must know but we never meet any of those guys so doesn't matter i've started to have these sort of um r-rated cuts of these books in my head where I'm like, okay, this is describing real reality, but it's for children. So let me imagine what's left out. So I think whoever hid the treasure went home, shot himself in the head. <laughs> you know, okay, like, I clues only. In the revolution. I also think that there's something untoward or upsetting going on with the John sister is like, you know, flirting with a regular plot line. Because it feels more sinister 
vanities. Yeah. Uh-huh, um, I agree. That for the listener, one of John's many siblings. Uh, All of is, whom are it, sisters. He's the only boy. He he. She is fancied by a regular that they're that they're uh, quite often quartering uh, because there is no third amendment. Please please remember, not not quite yet. And uh, it, it basically, she she like keeps flirting with him and hanging out with him to get information. And it comes out at the end of the book that she was feeding this information to the Patriots. Uh, but. I kept expecting it to become a problem. I was like, okay, at what point does this man want sex or immediately get mad that too. He, right, and or like get mad that she won't marry? Like when is this going to boil over? And it turns out he's the he's the only evil man in fiction who ever had flirting as as an ends, not a means. <laughs> he was like, this is fine. Yeah, it. Uh, they don't even <laughs> tar and feather that yet. guy. There's no Third Amendment yet. Which, yeah, of course, it's the American Revolution. <laughs> well, just in case you were like, why can they be quartered? That's illegal. The answer is, well, it didn't exist yet. But also... Uh, where's uh, the lie, as the kids say? <laughs> I do like that you had such faith in this book that you were like... How come? What? When is it going to resolve? What does this man want? Meanwhile, the beginning set you up for failure because it was like, here's this ring that will never come back in this. Well, I didn't know it wasn't going to come back, Rachel. I expected back. it all to come together at once. Catherine said, "I'm leaving it open ended. You guys figure out what you think." I guess that's reality. Stuff. You know, not everything ties together. <laughs> not everything resolves. Like you that's want. what Joan wanted from the story. <laughs> this is. Classic binge. This is um, <laughs> this is us with every young adult book just being like, the lack of resolution and, and what could be called the lack of planning is an incredibly postmodern touch. <laughs> I have a pitch for this book. I know we're still talking about it, but here is the pitch for this book and this entire series, even though I am, can only speak on this one book. Uh-huh. It would be better if it was a choose-your-own-adventure. That's what I said. It would be so much better if it was just I said that adventure. in the last fucking book, Rachel. It would be minds. It would make sense because you're trying to find the treasure. So if you're choosing your own adventure, you are actively participating in the search for this treasure. I do want to say the clues in this book are more solvable by the reader yeah. than the clues in the previous book. Like they are based in real historical things that you might know or learn about. And real locations that still exist that you might be able to say, like, next time I'm in Boston, I'm going to go see that tree or whatever. And that might be fun for a young... The Liberty Tree. (laughs) Well, but it is... I mean, that is more in line with the movies because Mm -hmm. that was the whole point is that, like, it's on the back of the Declaration of Independence and then they are going to the Liberty Bell and it was, like, all the things that are leading up to, like, their actual places. I was very gratified to see that happen in this book. And that a lot of the clues are written in like different handwriting and script, which different is Different handwriting satisfying. that I couldn't read. Really? I found, <laughs> so <laughs> Hannah, Hannah what if, page you could is go to, if you could me. go to 53, mm. Hannah, that's the yes. first clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to read that? I yeah. can, but Word it is from SA, the time seems close at hand. Follow this to the treasure we shall require for liberty to triumph. Duh. No Did problems at all. Did you not have to learn cursive? And no, I can write cursive? cursive. It's just a little, it's this specific cursive kerning is a little hard. <laughs> um, did you have a hard time with the clues later in the book that are written in like comic sans? No, those were easy. <laughs> okay. okay. 
what's copper grasshopper sees? Yeah, <laughs> it's like this is horrible. This is worse than the Avatar font, <laughs> which is papyrus. We must yeah. not forget papyrus. Let's um, let's follow these clues a little bit because Hannah, you and I were very critical of the treasure hunt in Changing Tides, book one. Mm-hmm. How did you feel? So let's like take this first clue. How does how well does this lead into the resolution of the well, clue? I couldn't figure out the clue. But I think the way that the characters talk it out together helped me feel like I was part of the puzzle solving. And -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah. And then they're like, oh, that must be the well-known newspaper in Boston. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's a real thing that isn't a shape that I could never possibly see or know about. (laughs) So I, I, I like the way that the clues are presented. I think it's clear when you're like... I mean, this first one, they have to, like, heat Right. They the heat paper, it up and right? they, get, they get poor Richard wrought a governor's shame when one man's true sentiments did inflame. Yeah, Spy so like, ye one, tis not the same, whence to all patriots such news came. I, I don't have a brain for anything like that. I read all of these and I'm like, duh. So for I, me, I, like, I, never I don't know this. everything about this and I wouldn't be able to solve it. But I I recognize poor Richard, and I was like, well, that's a thing. And true sentiments is in quotations. So like, okay, that's definitely a clue. And then when they get to the point where they're like, such news came, I was like, mm, I don't know. But the character was like, oh, maybe they mean a newspaper. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like you're I saying, the, you're John. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, huh? What? Huh? Neat. Wow. Cool. I mean, I can't talk. I was sitting over here. You guys were talking about the first clue, and I was reading the word from essay one. Like, it's word from Sam Adams. I don't know why this is. You guys think this yeah, is so right? hard, and then realized it was the next page. But like, but I was the word from essay. Like, like the characters are like, hmm, what could that mean? And I was like, oh, Sam Adams, and that feels good as a reader. Yeah, I didn't put that together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that one I was like, I got most of it because it's word from Sam. But I also get way too into it. And I'm like, the time seemed close at hand. And for me, I'm like, that means it's like 10.55. And I'm like, no, it just means that like the time's coming up. It could be, though. <laughs> like, there's clues in this where them saying, like, the time is 4th. You're like, oh, 4 p.m. <laughs> like that. There's- <laughs> they got it. <laughs> You know, like there's some of that in this book. These clues are much more accessible. It does feel like uh, Hapka heard us, and, and we appreciate you listening, Catherine. Um, yeah, thank you for retroactively fixing your book. <laughs> yeah, we did in the first book. We were very critical of um, the fact that so many clues were visual, and so many clues were about maps and about ridges and about shapes and coins and and things like that. This book is just like text clue, text clue, text clue. It's just, she heard us. She, yeah. she, she followed our lead. And I appreciate it. Uh, and I had a lot of fun following the clues in this book. Or like the third clue, I think the third clue is on page 93. Yeah. Is that I, the third uh, one? Uh-huh. Okay. Which tells you from page 50 to page 93 how far between clues the first half of the book is. Then it speeds up like you wouldn't fucking believe. But this one, those initial massacred five shall help we patriots shift and thrive. And then there's like a cipher message. And I was like, okay, like I figured this one out on my own, sorta. <laughs> to the point where I was like, this rocks. I'm having fun. 
<laughs> I would love to be at this table with John and George and Duncan playing with a cipher. This rules. Hannah would have I, uh, solved the Zodiac murders. <laughs> yeah. I, I like this part on 56 where he's starting to get into treasure hunting and someone's like, uh, or George chuckled, perhaps you should show it to your father. It seems much like one of his treasure maps, does it not? John knew George meant no ill by his lighthearted comment, but nonetheless, he felt a flash of annoyance. This note was a very different matter from his father's imaginary treasure clues. Wasn't it? George is my favorite character in the book. By the way. <laughs> uh, what's What differentiates him from Duncan? <laughs> um... <laughs> George is in the militia. He's a Minuteman, uh-huh. and he's, like, very committed to his duties. He's, like, kind of dumb, but is a good team player. There's a part where he picks Duncan up and throws him over his shoulder to carry him to safety when they're on the run from army men, and I love oh, that. Yes. <laughs> and Duncan is, like, a smart little intellectual boy whose daddy is really mean and oppressive, and also he has a bad leg and walks with a cane. Mm. They're different mm. guys. They're different guys, just like Sam and John. Famously different guys. <laughs> yeah. Just like Joan and Catherine. <laughs> Famously <laughs> different gals. <laughs> I will say that in life I have this issue with like men with um very like Anglo names. Like I, I, I'm I'm known to like call a Ben a John and a John a Ben. Those 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 are names that do not like have their own flavor to me. In my brain. What's an Andrew then? I am one of them, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think okay. Andrew has like just the slightest more juice than the ones I just said, but not much. Not You're much. You're insulting my cat. Just two syllables. Your cat's name is Benji. Benji. Benjamin. Benji's a different thing, though. Benji's it's Benjamin. It's Benji. I love that sort of like one syllable, like fifties boy name, like Tom, Fred, Chris. Damn. You know, like, yeah, love that shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love them. Mm-hmm. I don't have any ill will. John. I just do call them by the wrong names. Well, learn. Try harder to learn people's <laughs> names, Andrew. I'm sorry to tell you. You should work on that. I don't know if you know this, Hannah, but I am reading upwards of 50 books a year. Same. And I learn character names and details. Yeah, but character names and details, of course. But the names of people around me, I cannot. <laughs> but wait, it has well, to be I guess specific. that's fair, one or the other. Because I know Hannah very well, Hannah. What are the sisters' names? Oh, um, Elizabeth, Alice, Mary. Okay. I was gonna say, but Mercy that sounds like a Hannah voice. It's not chastity, but the 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 other twin is something like that. But I got four of the five sisters. So. Well, no, because I was like, George sounds like a Hannah boy. So yeah, I was, he does. <laughs> so George I was is a like, Hannah of name. Of course, Hannah remembers. He's a he's a beefy boy and i liked him yeah you were right i did like him i have types and he's one of them what about it (laughs) i'm not gonna pretend you're wrong i mean what i what's there's also fun parts where they're riding all over massachusetts in chase of these clues like you'd think that maybe these puzzle layers would leave the clues like within a distance where you wouldn't have to spend four days riding x y and z all over massachusetts but these boys get like a full tour of their home state yeah, and they have to return to uh, locations that they like. They didn't figure out the clue fast enough, and they're like, mm-hmm. "We gotta go back to Boston. The tree is in Boston." 
I like that. That's a level of verite that I can really get on board with. Where they're like, fuck, man, we were right there. Yeah, 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 definitely. But it's just funny when you remember that their only means of transportation is either their foot or riding on horse. So it is. Boy, they won't shut up about riding on horses. Constantly, like, I had to swap out my horse. I left my horse and traded it for a different horse. That was this type of horse. And it was a slow horse, but it was a fast horse. Oh, my God, I don't care about horses that much. It really made me wonder how that economy worked back then. Like, do I... Are there situations where I'm trading my horse and, like, I might never, ever see it again? Or is it always the understanding that, like, I'm trading it out as, like, a rental? And then, if that's true, if I'm making a long journey, does that mean that I then have to, like... If I've traded a horse 12 times, do I have to do the chain in reverse order in order to get everyone their horse back? I think so. What I've learned from my time watching Yellowstone... Is that horses just get swapped out left, right, and center, and you just kind of have to go with the flow of whatever horse you end up with. There is a lot of talk about how, like, Liberty is the fastest horse in Massachusetts, and John, like, loves her, and she's a great horse. And then he is, like, constantly, like, leaving her at the side of the road to swap for another horse that he's never met before. Yeah. Um, And I thought maybe there would be a point where he's like, oh, boy, I either have to do like a triangle to find the next clue and, like, maybe leave Liberty forever... Or I have to go back and get her and, like, it'll take too much time. Oh, no. Uh, He never has to make choices of Liberty the Horse versus Liberty for America. Never has to Because I'm pretty sure he would pick that horse. Maybe. Also, this book takes place over the course of, like, ten months. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Like, they are not hurrying to solve this fucking mystery. Like, I get that they're trying, but, like, every every other clue, they're like, oh, it took us four weeks to solve this one. Jesus, what if there was an emergency? Because we had to go back and forth to Boston. Yeah, it took us two days to get to Boston. It does make John meaningfully different from every other Gates character we've met. Every other Gates character is like, treasure hunt, I'm pulling out my hair thinking of it 24 hours a day. John's like, I have a life. I love working for the post office. Every once in a while, I bolt upright in bed having figured out a clue. I do like, though, that in theory, they get it just gets diluted throughout their family history. And then when it gets to Benjamin Franklin Gates, he's like, yeah, I like treasure hunting and I'm good at it. I think I figured this out. I'm going to do it. But he by no means is so consumed that he has no friends. <laughs> like He has friends, but he's just like, yeah, man, I think I'm going to do it. I, I think I figured it out. Like, let's go. Treasure hunting these days is a cool hobby. <laughs> I'm also a lecturer. <laughs> I don't know. I think he's the I don't know what his job crazy is. of like all of them. There's that scene in the first National Treasure where someone's talking to him about treasure when he's a kid and you can just see his like his his eyes like turn into like treasure chests. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Nick Nick Cage's all. eyes do that naturally, so they had to But it's a child actor. The, they had to make the child's eyes do it because yeah. Nick Cage's eyes Yeah, do it for naturally. continuity of characterization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they grew a little Nick Cage clone in a lab and he was put down <laughs> after that. But he served his purpose. We can't have two Nick Cages. <laughs> only one of Francis too Ford Coppola's. Yeah, only one of Francis Ford Coppola's nephews <laughs> needs to have that much power. Isn't Jason Schwartzman also a Coppola nephew? Yeah, but he's a different. He's a different breed okay. of nephew versus the Nick okay. Cage version. Yeah, I mean, clearly, yeah. Isn't he a Coppola grandson? Schwartzman. I, I think yeah. yeah I think I, him and Nick Cage are isn't cousins. His mother Talia Shire. 
Yes, I think him and Nick Cage true? are cousins, but yeah. Nick Cage is directly Francis Ford Coppola's uh, nephew. That family tree is confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about it like I know, much like <laughs> I did with the Third Amendment. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, Hannah, is it worth going through these clues? There's so there's so many. I don't think it is worth it because it continually, it takes them to a place, they find another clue, then they go home. Then they go to another place. So they aren't like following a trail in the most traditional way. They are diluting it among their friends and family to help solve it. I think more compelling than the mystery in this is the like personal drama. And that's maybe what we should talk about. Did it feel to you like there was less personal shading than in the first book? It did, but there was, like, more events. Like, there was all this stuff happening with Duncan, where his dad is, like, kind of a loyalist and... Mm -hmm. Or is at least neutral, doesn't want anything to do with it. And it's like, my son cannot be involved in revolutionary activities. And so, like, Duncan ends up being, like, unable to help with certain clues at certain points because of that. And meanwhile, George is, like, getting more and more wrapped up in the Minutemen stuff and the militia and the training and the arming and... So he's less able to be helpful. And like that stuff's interesting. And John has this stuff happening with like his sisters flirting with this fucking, as they say, lobster back, a word I never want to hear again. So <laughs> obnoxiously used. 80 times. So many times. I'm like, there must be at least two other words for red coats, as twere. One of them, one of them blood mans. They're like, really, the, the, the other ones aren't clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At one point, John breaks his leg and his family Sorry, is- what what's happening? I was looking at the Coppola family tree. <laughs> I was making sure I was correct in the Coppola family tree. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking... <laughs> Good. We were talking about the various human drama elements happening in this book. You know, John breaks his leg on a clue hunt being chased by army men and then the family is like what if we can't make enough money to eat because john's not doing his postal route and he can't work in the stables like he used to like that stuff could be really interesting and like a good like are you going to choose to continue this treasure thing for the sake of patriotism or are you going to like commit and hunker down to your family and taking care of them and the book's like doesn't engage with that it's for kids it's okay but that stuff happening in the background i found there's less of it than the first book, but I found it more interesting. Inter- okay. You know what I mean? Someone gets tarred and feathered. Yeah. For a se- uh, So we haven't even talked about Mr. Sims. Who I thought was a meanie loyalist, but then keeps showing up to be like, you're not patriotic enough. This is something I thought was so interesting. Really confused. The, the, the interpersonal issues, the conflicts in this book are like all within... Patriots. So, (laughs) this Mr. Sims guy, he wanted to marry his daughter. No, he wanted to marry his son to Alice, and Alice wasn't into it, so it didn't happen. And that's the backstory. That's before the book starts. So, this guy just hates the family, and he's mean to the family, and all this stuff. And everything he does, which is sort of unthinkably evil, is like evil in the in the name of patriotism. Like, the book is really good about being, like, not everybody that believes in this cause is is a chill dude. The tar and feathering, right, is just the tar and feathering on, like, suspicion of sedition. Yes. 
then he calls John's dad a traitor and almost gets him hung, hanged. Yeah. But also, the reason, when you think about it, Sims is the reason that John is in the revolution at all. Because the only reason that he went to Paul Revere was because Sims was going to buy Liberty and was like, no, I'm not selling my horse to that guy. And so then that's the reason he's there. So it's even funnier when you're like, John, you would not be here if it wasn't for that guy that he Mm. hates. Mm. Mm. That's, That's true. That's true. You know, you can believe in the same causes and also have different concepts of how to pursue them and how to live your life in a moral, fair way. <laughs> what this well, book is saying. Oh, I don't, I don't like that guy. I'm just saying, John wouldn't. Oh no, the, the guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. I probably wouldn't be where I was in life without COVID, but that doesn't mean I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um. Yeah. S- Sims also. Like seems to be acting at, at in first of all he's like in a frenzy like he basically tars and feathers the guy with like no evidence and then later in the book it it feels like when he almost gets uh, John's father killed it feels like it, whether he's admitting it to himself or not that is him acting out because he's upset that the woman he wanted to marry his son is flirting with a. British officer. Is that a fair read? At least partially, but like, girl, don't be hanging with British officers anyway is also part of the problem. Like, not only is it not my son, but it's this fucking Brit who sucks. I do think that that plot line with her flirting with the British officer is really funny because she, the way it plays out for the listener, is that uh, John, our protagonist, is like, it's pretty fucked up that my sister is flirting with a British officer. I thought she, too, was a patriot. And he talks to her about it, and she's like, I'm doing it to get on his good side. He tells me all sorts of information. I thought, surely this will come up. The only way it comes up is that at the end, when his father is about to be hanged or whatever, uh, someone comes forward, some patriot, and is like, she really has been feeding us great information about the regulars and i i just thought why couldn't that be part of the plot have her feed me the reader great information that helps don't just or have someone vouch like that it's happening a surprise that john too is like oh, i can't believe my sister's doing this and she won't stop and nobody whatever and then when she's like actually i was doing it for a good cause we're all like oh it's a surprise to all of us yeah as opposed to like manufacturing drama when we the reader is like she's fine this isn't real this is not a problem actually it just felt to me like they wanted her to play this role of you know funneling information or whatever and the author couldn't come up with an example of how she would do it and how it would be effective and how it would be useful and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's no reason for them to have that many people in that family. <laughs> you don't feel like his seven sisters were all really well-developed? <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe pick, like, one. You don't need, he doesn't need twins and some other sister so I then they all need like a, it's a large family or whatever but it's okay that they don't have anything to do like i feel like Ka- Catherine has like written a book that has like three young men as the leads 
And she was like, oh, I should have a girl doing something, too. And she, like, gives Alice this thing, which then, like, she can't loop into the larger plot. Catherine, it was the American Revolution. Like, we get it, girl. Boys, boys ran things. Boys be doing stuff. Why do you think it was chaotic? Because we let the boys do it. It's okay, Catherine. It's history. You don't need to shoehorn a girl into it. I was a little surprised that there wasn't a girl more involved with the clues or that there's that one girl whose like dad is a major loyalist that they meet, right? Who helps them find one of the clues. The the woman who lives in the prosperity house. At one yes. point they're they're they find out that there's a clue inside the prosperity house, but there it's a it's a problem because there's a there's a regular there's a British soldier party happening in there, but uh, one of the women living there is a secret loyalist, so she's basically like, she's sneak around my house, out. have at it, but also I can't help you. If you get caught, you're on your own. Yeah, I kind of expected her, because they describe her as like, she's cute and pretty, and she's about the boy's age, and I was like, oh, well, now she will join the story and kiss one of the boys. But no, that didn't happen at all. And even the sort of, like, simmering, perhaps romantic thing between Duncan and Alice never comes to any kind of fruition. She's got they too just, much like, on her plate. They just, like, chat together at the end. She's got too much on her plate. I mean, that's fine. She's, got, she's doing a million things. Those other <laughs> sisters are just sitting there. <laughs> They're like, Alice. One of them of is married. Maybe both Mary and Elizabeth are married. No, Mary is married to that guy who owns a tavern. Oliver, why do I remember all of this? Why do Elizabeth, you remember it all? Elizabeth has like a I fucked up hand, today, and, and so she's not married. Stuff. She just hangs around at home doing housework. Alice is like probably fourteen years old, is flirting with an adult man, being a busy patriot, and then the twins are like eight. See, but what they're if picking up corn and stuff. Who had been flirting? Because then people would be like, "Oh, look how sad she's flirting because no one will flirt with her." And then she's like, "No, bitches, I'm getting information." And then that would have been like, great. Here. I just think it's such a stagnant plot point, and and Hannah, you've kind of added to it by pointing out that Alice and Duncan don't even hit it off, (laughs) because in the middle of the book, Duncan sees this thing that also upset John, which is Alice flirting with a soldier, and he becomes very blue about it, and John is like, oh, I'm noticing, because I'm learning to read people, that he has a crush on my sister. That's what's happening, and Hannah, you're so right, it doesn't pay off with them getting together or anything it's just this incredibly stagnant plot point of like she's funneling information but we're only telling you that she's doing it and because we're also telling you it's a vital function she has to just keep doing it at the end of the book she can't be out there dating some guy that piss off her soldier boyfriend great point they don't even like kick that soldier out of the house and say like we're done with you it's over stop flirting with my daughter and she goes like i never liked you like there's not even any sort of like good victorious button on that huh i mean i think you are forgetting this passage that's towards the end of the book please correct me i would love it if there was there's a a point at the end of the book where john walks up let me make sure i have the passage here um (laughs) He says to the soldier who is flirting with his sister, he says, um, you may be happy now, but someday there will be a third amendment to a constitution <laughs> to a nation that doesn't yet exist. 
that prohibits this specific love affair mm. from evolving mm. in this way. I did forget about that, and it mm-hmm. is satisfying. Yeah. It is really, it really in, ties in, in things that up. Same, in that same pa- uh, passage, there's an asterisk, and he continues by saying, and someday there will also be a Second Amendment that people mis- misuse, and they think that guns equal assault rifles, but not muskets in the modern era, but that's not the case. But that won't be true. Yeah. And also don't forget the 10th Amendment that says just because we didn't mention it doesn't mean it's not a thing. Anyway. And I can say all of this because of the First Amendment, the right to free speech. Suck it, Brits. Yeah, and then there's this other passage right at the end where he's like, and someday there will be this thing called texting, which at first seems really convenient, but then you'll come to realize that like when someone texts you something that like, isn't funny or you don't want to keep talking about like it's kind of you don't know how to respond and eventually after that in this new nation that once again doesn't exist yet they'll create this thing called the tap back where you can just sort of go like haha or throw like two exclamation points or like a heart and it's like a great way to sort of get out of the conversation uh while pretending that you're enjoying it I hope that this book is so progressive yeah it really is like so prescient um (laughs) Uh, you know, I book three is like maybe one, maybe two generations after this book. And I hope that the heroes of book three are Duncan and Alice's kids. I want this mm. to come down through a lady. But Not just Gates, Gates family boys. Yeah, I was like, well, whatever. Fine. Maybe they, maybe she kept her last name as an independent 1773 young lady. Or Hannah. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. The, the the female character gets together with the other Gates family from book one. There's <laughs> other Gates. That's true. From 150 years ago. Yup. They're still around. Maybe Duncan takes her last name because he's pissed off at his dad. Fine. Does it make sense? No, I was wrong. What about <laughs> it? Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, John's dream about Paul Revere. Just, What's happening there? He just there? needs to make out with Paul Revere and get over it. So late in the book, he's trying to figure out some clue. I don't even remember what it is. It's got to be the last one. I mean, it's almost at the end of the book. And it says uh, he's trying to stay awake. He's in church. He slumps down in his seat, fast asleep. He dreamed that he entered Mr. Revere's silver shop in Boston and found a series of three large doors set into its back wall. He turned to Revere in confusion, only to find Revere had morphed into Samuel Adams, who was twelve feet tall with a great gray mane of hair and eyes that flashed fire. You must choose your door, young Gates, the giant Adams had thundered. One leads to heaven, the realm of patriots and innocent children. Another leads to hell, the dominion of loyalists and regulars. John had pointed to the doors. But there are three, he said. Where does the other lead? Adams had glared at him as if he was thinking he should already know the answer. No man knows where that door leads, he said, for it is the door of natives, neutrals, papists, and everyone else of uncertain moral fate. Yeah, those papists. Immoral. (laughs) At that, John had let out a gasp. Aha, he had said, just before coming suddenly awake and then yelling in church that he figured out some clue. But like... This is heaven, hell, and purgatory, right? So, and he's again, like, 
not to point out the racism. No, that's exactly like, what I want to talk about. Like, hey, if you aren't uh, baptized, you're going to purgatory, which is natives, neutrals, papists, and everyone else of unmor- a certain moral fate. The more we talk papists about it, Rachel, baptized, I, mean, I, it's a different I agree thing. with you that it's racist, but the more we talk about it, I'm like, it's good that it's racist. It's kind of bold that this book is like, look, Samuel Adams was fucking racist. Yeah, I'm well, with like, you on that. I it agree. is on that side. It is just like when you come at it from a standpoint of, ah, yes, a book about the National Treasure Gates family. It's like, I don't want to be reminded that this family is responsible for like the genocide of people i not directly rachel <laughs> but they were there like the point uh, being, like the, the, rachel it sounds like you want to read about a treasure not in america then because yeah, in america great. we talk genocide <laughs> and you shouldn't treasure. pretend it didn't happen All and of also, our treasures honestly, are linked to genocide. it's 1773 the worst of it hasn't even happened yet <laughs> So it's coming. You guys are going to have real fun in book four and five. <laughs> no, book four is like set maybe during the Civil War or directly after. And book five is theoretically set in the 1920s. I would be fascinated and intrigued if book four takes place during the Trail of Tears. I don't think it does, though. I think, it takes, I think they avoid that time period. You said theoretically during the 1920s. What if the Gates family was responsible for the Great Depression? With love. <laughs> they found the, they found a treasure that caused the stock market to crash. Yeah, they, no, they undermined hid all the, the money. Standard. Yeah, they hid, all the, <laughs> they hid all the fucking money. <laughs> so they're responsible for Cinderella Man. Thank I you think so we much have to discuss what the national treasure is. Like, have we been explicit about that? No, the, so they go no. to a tree that has a clue that leads to a million other trees that have clues, and eventually they find a, something that leads them to a dang boulder. And Hannah, what yes. happens then? Inside the boulder is a cave, and inside the cave there's a bunch of trunks, and the trunks are full of gunpowder and guns. And the national treasure was the right to bear arms. Hell yeah. <laughs> and by that I mean, oh no. <laughs> Well, what was... So you said the first one, the National Treasure, was a medallion? No, in the first one, the treasure that they find at the end of their little treasure hunt is a chest that has a bunch of, like, native artifacts oh, that's right. and, and they don't, they don't, in it. And then they return them to the... I would go as far to people. say that that is the first amendment because the, it's the right to uh, the freedom of speech and they believe that that is not worth their time. And they speak it. You're reaching, saying, babe. You're reaching really hard. I don't get it at all. What are you saying? She's trying to say that these books, like it, within each book, they discover an amendment part, an amend, part of the Bill of Rights in order right. to build that. And so I said the Although first one literally, the freedom of speech because they're like, like we, ten years after this book, they're going to write the Constitution and have the Bill of Rights. So I don't think that's going to work. Also, the th- Third Amendment is definitely the amendment that pertains most to this book. But they find the this guns. book is like what I they would find is gun. The so gun. what they would yeah. find in the third book would be like a bunch of soldiers that you don't want to put anywhere. Yeah, well, I, I found want that guy or like I house. found a bunch of rooms and I'm not obligated to keep anyone here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's wow. just a book about an apartment building that they found, <laughs> but they don't want to be a landlord. <laughs> 
America's first apartment building. What do you guys think of this take, also from Reddit? Uh, the question not asked by me was what led to the Revolutionary War of America, and someone says, this is not the most popular answer, it's a few yeah. down. Someone Third says- write that question on Reddit? Yeah, what? I'm worried. Uh, it's, an ex- it's an explain like I'm five, so- okay. So yes, probably. Okay. All the other stuff was there. The real issue was that the Americas wanted to expand westward. The fertile areas to the east of the Appalachians were mostly full, and there was more opportunity to the west. After the French and Indian War, Britain secured its hold on the continent and wanted to turn America into a combination of colony and Indian reserve that would produce revenue for the crown. This person is basically saying like it's in opposition to... They, they want to expand westward, and the British government doesn't want them to. And they end their post by saying, none of the official reasons were really important before this. Afterwards, they became talking points because it's hard to criticize an empire for not helping you to form your own empire. Is that I true? Partially, I... What, fifth, what five-year-old are you explaining this to? Explain like I'm five as a subreddit is like a failure of the internet because no one actually goes on and is like, imagine that your toy truck is, you know, like everyone like <laughs> explains like you're 14. Yeah, like, I was like, in what world would you be like, all right, son, here's, here is what actually went down. Like, no, that's just. I guess maybe, maybe uh, it is accurate. It's like, it is a bunch of people explaining like they would to a five-year-old. It's just like the worst this fathers in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that what you get in your early schooling is how you would explain it to a five-year-old, which is that like the citizens of the colonies were unhappy with the way that England was treating them and decided they would rather do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is something to like, well... We had kind of run out of space and expanding would mean more conflict with the French and England didn't want to do that. And the American people said like, well, we're the ones living here. So maybe get out of our business. Maybe. I mean, sure. Okay. I guess. I don't know. Hmm. I don't hmm. think England ever, if they had gotten full control of the American continent, would have allowed any of it to remain as quote unquote Indian reserve. Yeah, that part's Like that's wild. fucking wrong. That's a lie. Um, no. But did they perhaps say, well, we won't fuss with that right now because it's kind of more trouble than it's worth? Yeah. But eventually it would become worth the trouble and they would have done it. I, I think the thing that, that I'm enticed by in that explanation is the retroactive changing of justification. Oh, we actually did it for things that sound also, not so craven. Lewis and Clark didn't even go on an adventure for another like 30 right, years. Right, we had to acquire the Louisiana Purchase first. Which happens during Thomas Jefferson's presidency. Uh-huh. So already after the Revolutionary War. Very much so. But that doesn't mean that people weren't trying to cross the a- the Appalachia, the mountains a- there. You guys are killing me with how you're ca- naming the mountains right now. It's Appalachian. I, I, I said Appalachian, is that wrong? It's Appalachian. Whatever. I'm also from the South, so I'm allowed to say it how I want to say it. It's just where I went to college. I can't deal with it. I went from Virginia. It's Appalachian State. I got Hey, my my college was near the AT. I'm still wrong. You know, doesn't matter. The point is, the mountains are there, and people wanted to cross them so they could live further out 
and have uh-huh. more land and have more life and freedom. And all you can't all just I'm do that on French land all the time. This redditor for is that if you were explaining the the war to a five year old, I would just simply say that we were getting taxed too much. People didn't like it, and that's all that five year old needs. There's yeah, there's a lot of simple reasons, and there's nothing wrong with boiling it down to something very simple for a child. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we must give went. National Credit Treasure Midnight Ride some credit for really getting into some more complicated concepts that led to the revolution, Definitely. like quartering, etc. I think I, I, I'm 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 so impressed that this book is so in on quartering. Like, let's talk about quartering. It was a huge accelerant in the American Revolution. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then at the very end. Paul Revere's midnight ride is occurring, and John puts on his boots to go join in. As Hannah said, the titular midnight ride. The titular midnight ride. Now, Hannah, you were wrong about this, right? Because two nights ago, when we were recording the first episode and both of us had started the second book, you suggested that liberty would be used as the horse in Paul Revere's midnight ride. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I... I don't think I was 100% wrong. I do think it is not in the book like I thought it would be. But, but, the, a guy rides up and is like, essentially, the British are coming, the British are coming, which as we know is not what they actually said. Mm-hmm. And as we know, it was not just Paul Revere doing the ride. It was a bunch of guys spreading the word around the Massachusetts colony. So this guy says, you know, the regulars are coming, the regulars are coming. And John... Gets up, puts on his boots and his coat, wakes up his dad, and is ready to go do what it takes to help the cause. Which, to me, means maybe he's hopping on Liberty and he's doing some of the ride, too. So I think I'm taking partial credit for this one. That makes sense. I really like how in this book, every time he tells someone that his horse's name is Liberty, they're like, whoa, whoa, Whoa. you are... You're like a real believer, man. That is that is cool as hell. That is. It's so really fun cool. compared to that one clue about George Washington's horse, and they're like, "What's that horse's name?" And they're like, "Nelson." <laughs> Andrew, I do like you. The way you said "whoa" sounded like uh, Crush from Finding Nemo. Yeah, I think that's how he would react to learning about <laughs> Liberty the horse. This is a terrible stand-up routine. Just Sorry. Uh, this As is Crush from Finding Nemo learning that John Raleigh Gates from <laughs> National Treasure Midnight Ride, a Gates family mystery number two's horse's name is Liberty. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, Hannah, as you were talking about the end of this book, I discovered yeah. that they have Pirates of the Caribbean ones. I uh-huh. got real excited. I was oh, like, yeah. this ad at the end of the book. This is 2008, honey, and it was a time uh, this for an adventure. Um, yeah. Uh, there he is. I like that it is. Probably it is not a, in a historic sort of setting. book for the listener no. to Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a spinoff from Dead Men Tell No Tales. So not the... Not the, uh, the Legends of, of the Brethren Court. It is a spinoff from one of the sequel movies. Yeah, well, that's uh, the time in which this book came out. Disney, so what are you gonna do? I love you. I love the mouse so much. I don't, but that's fine. <laughs> I love the mouse. This is insane. I w- I like to think that in book 
seven. It's like, we have to work with Walt Disney to solve a mystery. <laughs> yeah, they're in the 1950s. Boy, that guy was great, huh? <laughs> I do, I do like, Andrew, to your earlier point about names, that, like, the Gates family continue to have the most boring-ass names. Because, like, if you look at the expert for Uncharted, it's, like, Adam Benjamin Gates. And I'm like, okay. You couldn't yeah. think of, like, any flair to that name. I mean, the fact that one of the sisters in this book is named Elizabeth, which is also the name of the lead girl in the first book, was confusing. Yes. But there's only so many names in 1770. What are you supposed to do about it? Is there? <laughs> They're like trading family names left, right, and center. And I think it is at this point, we have enough history behind us that all of these people should be named after historic figures like yep. Benjamin Franklin Gates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We should have the guy in this should be named after some other, I don't know, John Smith Gates. What about like Jebediah? What are they, Amish? I don't know. It's just a fun, it's a more interesting name than the same five names just interchanged, whether it's not a middle name or a first name. I just think we could be aiming higher in naming. I agree with you, Rachel. I do. We could be... We could be drawing more from the movies to inspire how we name our characters. Hannah Blackman. Yeah. Your friend, John, is on a treasure hunt in which his progress between clues takes months. He's stumped about something, and what he told you was so boring. It was like something about like the Bible verses... But maybe the lines above the numbers mean something about the Bible verses or whatever. Uh, so he doesn't have much going on. He's feeling kind of mm-hmm. low. Yeah. Would you give him National Treasure, Midnight Ride, a Gates Family Mystery, number two, number abbreviated like it's a pencil, given what you know? Um, well, in that specific situation, I would give him this book because I think it would inspire him to keep trying. You know, like you're going to get there in the end, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like this one more than the first one. I thought it moved oh. at a brisker pace and I had more fun reading it. The clues, as mentioned, were followable, which brings me joy and pleasure. Um, I still think it's too long. I think 280 mm-hmm. pages is way too long for a book like this. Um so I wouldn't recommend it to most people, I think, probably. I think the further we get into this series, the more I'm going to take back how positive I was about the first one. I was wrong about mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think these are kind of charming. And if I had like a little cousin who was like, I'm going to Boston next week, I'd be like, oh, you want to read a book about Boston? Might be fun for you. National treasure. Enjoy. So, so you're ranking at this point two, then one. Yes. These yeah, that is my current book ranking two and then one goes on you really weren't bothered by the fact that there was like way less personal stuff i think i was so sort of intrigued by what was there that it was fine Mm -hmm. and i liked it better i liked the versions of stuff that we got better than the like love triangle bullshit in the first one which felt like so stupid to me yeah that was uh incredibly annoying rachel leishman you are in a college fraternity, and during a night of of unleashed bacchanalian pleasure, I finished the secret history, by the way, um, you uh, discover, like upon waking the next morning with the terrible hangover, that you have um, 
robbed the local police of all of their munitions and hidden them somewhere and forgotten where. You did this, you're sure, for patriotism, because every time you get drunk, you just start talking about patriotism. You are put in prison. Would you, knowing what you know, pass the time by reading? National Treasure, Midnight Ride, A Gates Family Mystery, Number 2, Number 2, Styled Like a Pencil, by Catherine Hapka. Well, it, I would get a lot of sleep in, because I famously just kept falling asleep on this book. Well, and what's but, a better hangover cure, also? Than reading this book and taking a nap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would. I mean, it's it's a fine book. I would oh, I would call it loosely based in the national treasure world, but I think it was a fine book. You could change the name Gates, and this would have nothing to do with national treasure. They're solving puzzles. See, Rachel, you're speaking my language now because in the first book, I was like Hannah. There's an argument to be made that the, these are not national treasure. Books. And I and said they're seeking is... national treasures, sure. yeah, treasures that affect the nation. But it is so intrinsically tied to the specific Gates family in those movies that, like, they pale, like the families are paling in comparison, or at least the one that I just read. There's not a single character as good as Riley Poole anywhere in yeah. these books. That's fair. That's <laughs> true. And and really? and let's give my point a little credence, like. <laughs> something I should have said during book one that I said at the beginning of this episode, these don't have the same tone at all. Mm. That's true. Hannah, they need a little logic. Riley pool. They need yeah, some fun. We need, we need, we need a, a pool ancestor. That yeah, is so do. true. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Make, it a, make it a lady. I'm, I'm ready. What was that, Rachel? I, so I hope in the third book, you guys get, get a pool relative. Look, as has been established, Catherine is listening, and she is going back in time to make her books better for us. So it could happen. Hannah, uh, uh, according to your, mm-hmm. it's a national treasure book because there's a national treasure thing. I mean, you would, <laughs> you would love a sequel to Big that was about like an orca whale. No, you'd be like, it's Big. If the orca no. whale turns into Wait, an adult orca whale, Zolta, <laughs> then yes. But the just Zoltar a whale no. is the key. The Z- yeah. The Zoltar is the the Gates family of the big franchise. Right. That's so true. Don't undersell me. I have standards, okay? I know what makes a big movie, and it's when a little boy becomes big. So if you had a baby a- whale that became a big whale and was like, how do I adapt to this world and size? That'd be a big movie. Asterisk, yeah. because of Zoltar. Mm-hmm. This is... I, I brought this up before, and I hate to be a person who spent a lot, way too much time doing improv, but this is the second beat question. Are you taking the same game and putting it in a different location, which is what these books are doing, or are you taking the same characters and having them do a different thing, which is what the movies are doing? And I like both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Big with an Orca Whale is the second beat where you have the same game, different situation. Okay, I see. So and you're then saying the, and that... And the, the, the third beat is the real kick. The whale solves a treasure hunt. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying, together. Hannah, is that, yeah. is that national treasure is a rare case where the kernel, the narrative kernel that, that 
you need to tie everything together is also the title. Because it's yeah, something it's the like national big, treasure. You wouldn't be satisfied with something just being big. Right. You, you, but national treasure, anything with a national treasure could be national treasure. I, I mean, would say national argument, treasure hunt. The same argument could be made mm-hmm. for like... Because otherwise uh, the Mr. All Rogers I can think of is like... Treasure movie. Because he's, he's a national, national, treasure. national treasure. But there's no yeah. hunt. But there's no treasure hunt. So indeed, I think it's a little both. It's the national treasure and the treasure hunt. And that's the thing. Andrew Overby. Hi. You are a horse. Ah! You are a pretty slow horse. Okay? You're old. You're tired. You're getting shown up left, right, and center by faster, younger horses that can jump over tall walls. And you just can't do that shit. Okay? Which means that you end up left behind in roadside stables pretty often. Just to rest, just to recuperate, because you get tired, you know? During one of those overnight stays at a barn you've never spent time in and therefore don't have any horse friends in, do you think you would spend time reading National Treasure Midnight Ride, A Gates Family Mystery by Catherine ha- Wait, A Gates Family Mystery Number 2 Styled Like a Pencil by Catherine Hapka? I wouldn't. Uh, This maybe suffered because I had already read one of the books and I found like, I I, I felt like I liked this one less and and I don't know how I would feel if it had been the first one I I read, but it's not meant to be the first one you read. So my issue with it, I, I compared the first book to a PC game where you're going, it's sort of like your choose your own adventure thing. I was thinking of it as like, this feels like a world where I could go around and look for clues. Like, it'd be nice to actually have sort of, like, choice in this situation and blah, 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 blah. The second book gave us what we thought we wanted, which was text clues, and there's a lot of text clues, and you could theoretically figure out the mystery. But for me, it turns out I really liked, you know, knowing that town in the first book and, like, feeling like it was a real place with real characters. And I the Jamestown. Which is a real place with no, real but, characters. Sure, but I mean, you mean, I mean like emotionally real. Um, <laughs> it was real to him. <laughs> it was real to me, damn it. Um, <laughs> I I feel like the this book, uh, I'm not good at solving clues, so the 20 clues in this chain <laughs> did not make me happy. And I felt like we didn't get shading like we got with the native girl in the first book and, and all the various interpersonal stuff. So for me... This is a don't recommend. I also want to say that I think Rachel's the first person that's ever uh, recommended a book they didn't finish. That might be an authorized first. Huge. Okay, but it was... But hey. It was... My stipulation was if I was in a jail cell with nothing else to do... Great point. Would I read this book? Then she might finish it. Then I would be like, yeah, How far did you get, exactly? Like, I have, like, another, like... I think like twenty some pages to get oh, through. Okay. When I when I said that there was a chapter one after the prologue, Rachel was like, "What? What? <laughs> I thought it ended without the Boston team. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was about one man's sudden radicalization. It um, was tw- it was those twenty pages or watch an episode of Yellowstone, and I picked the Cowboys. <laughs> I said, there you well, go. Kevin Costner, though. That's a clear point." So if I if I could watch Yellowstone in this jail cell or read Midnight Ride, I would number two like a pencil. I you know would what I'm read, gonna do though? I would watch Yellowstone. I am gonna watch the HBO John Adams again. Like tomorrow. With Paul Giamatti? Hell yeah. 
that like this book made me want to spend some time in the revolutionary war period so i'm gonna do that that's a mini series right hannah mm-hmm my paul my giamatti Stephen delane laura linney Eben, what's his name? Who's crushing it right now on Prestige Television as John Quincy, Andrew was, Scott? Uh, Everybody's kid, in that my fucking dad thing. Flew out to Chicago to see his brothers, uh, like for a golf weekend, and he got back and he was like, "Yeah, the golfing was really good. The brother we were staying with, he made us watch an episode of John Adams every night." <laughs> And at first we were like, what is happening? And eventually all five of us got really into it. I'm here to say that is a really good miniseries that engages with the time in a realistic, good, thoughtful way. It's It's not washing anybody to be a saint, you know? These were flawed men. And also like Stephen Delane as Thomas Jefferson is like, limp he's like a limp noodle which i think is great <laughs> really funny great choice correct well he's just Hannah, like have, against chairs all the time i like, have a whoa. question that i think only you can answer then oh my god because you're the well our friend group can answer this but you specifically i feel like i'm here right now so I'll this. Yes. My best. john adams and how it paints the bad men of our history as an American country versus bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson and how it paints a really bad man in our American history, which do you think is not a more accurate? Cause obviously John Adams is going to be more accurate, but a better attempt at talking about these complicated men. Well, I'm going to, I think it's John Adams easily, like, period, uh, because it is not a satire. It's genuinely engaging with the difficulties that we have to wrangle with in our own history. Um, but I also, to be controversial, don't believe in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of people in our history were bad in many ways, but that doesn't mean that their positive philosophies and the things we built our country on are inherently valueless. And uh, I think that John Adams is engaging with that level of, like, imperfection, but there's still positive things to be gleaned from these men. And it is blessed by saying, hey, John Adams is who we're following, a man who notoriously never owned slaves. Uh, The best of them, good old John Adams. So. John Adams is what book three is about, right? uh, Probably not, but I hope so. Okay. I think book three is set during the Louisiana Purchase era. So I think we're talking, I think we're talking Jefferson. And I think maybe, I oh, hope Jefferson, these kids sure. go on an adventure with Lewis and Clark. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? One, one can only hope. Rachel Leishman, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Why do you do it? And where can our listeners find it? I write for websites like... The Mary Sue and Collider and other places. Uh, And you can find my writing there. I do it because I like talking about Spider-Man on a regular basis. And I get to do that at my job. Um, And I like talking about Star Wars and other superheroes and movies. Wow, you Um, must love it then (laughs) when people are posting about, you know, Mary Sue's in Star Wars. Is that like your favorite thing ever? Yeah, because I love when people on the internet continually misunderstand the point of a Mary Sue, but also that Luke Skywalker is one by their standards. 
Um, He's a delicate baby boy. Luke Skywalker is a Mary Sue by their standards of a Mary Sue. A little baby. He's a blonde boy. He's a blonde boy who is dramatic as all could be and throws himself in the sand. Uh, But you can find me uh, at the Mary Sue. You can find my work there. You can find my podcast, uh, Padro Pascal. Uh, on the internet, I'm also bringing back the Fordcast, a Harrison Ford podcast. You're bringing it back. What's going on? We're bringing it back. Um, well, Harrison Ford's in a million things, <laughs> so we were like, I guess we should start back up. Um, and so that'll be coming back. And by the time this posts, that'll have been announced. So I'm not like messing. And our up. podcast remains dead. Rachel, super dead. Hard bodies. We could bring hard bodies back too. Just bring I don't have time for that. Podcasts. I don't have time. <laughs> um, and then. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter while it's still there at Rachel Eishman. I'm on Hive, I guess, at Rachel Eishman. <laughs> and if you just search my name, you can find my social media. I tweeted at James Mangold to ask him whether Dial of Destiny was getting a novelization, and he hasn't responded, but I fucking hope so. I hope Listen, so. Listen, my brother called that title bad, and I was like, you shut your mouth. It's a great title. I don't care what this movie's about. I'm so excited. It it could be. It's a meaningless series of words, so I'm into it. I think it's great that it makes me think of dish soap. Um, (laughs) To our listeners, please remember to rate our podcast. Please review it. Please subscribe to it. You're hitting the subscribe button. I appreciate that. I know you're not doing the other things. I know it. I can see. Please help me. Please. Getting really desperate on this one. Um... We also have a Patreon. It's authorized. No, I always say that. It's patreon.com slash authorized. We're doing so well on Patreon that they named the website after us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week with, of course, National Treasure Uncharted, a Gates family mystery number three, styled like a fucked A up harder pencil. pencil. Or a softer pencil? pencil? I don't remember which direction the numbers go. Yeah. Um, Cool. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic bit of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you can figure out what it is, but you can't. You absolutely can't. Hey, John, what do you have there? Asked Duncan, looking at the strange book in his friend's hand. It's a book by Catherine Hapka said John. It seems to point to a hidden stash of arms left behind that we could use for a potential revolution. I don't know about that, John, said Duncan. That's not like anything I've read in a history book. Well, you see, Duncan, said John, this is more of a the secret history. Good night.